What is going on, Restoration family? So glad that you could tune in. If this is your first time, welcome. We are so glad that you can be here. My name is Nate Huss, and I'm one of the pastors on staff. And uh, this week, we are diving into the first part of a three-part series called Trellis, the structure for us as a body here at Restoration Church. And so you're not gonna wanna miss a single week. Make sure you tune in all the way through. And uh, we look forward to growing through this together. Church, um, today, hey, that's enough fun and smiling and interaction and fellowship. Stop it. We've got things to do here. It's one of the best sounds, though. Other than, like, the wrestling pages of the Bible, I really like this fellowship that is now unstoppable. Um, You guys are the best. Over the next couple of weeks... We're going to talk about some stuff that's really key and foundational to the church, and so Pastor Landon's going to kick us off today with that. Thank you, Ron. Steve, I thought he was going to make you sing happy birthday to Lay, but he didn't. Thanks for uh, being with us this morning. As, as Ron mentioned, we are uh, launching a new series this morning. It's going to go uh, three weeks, and... We do this every year, an annual kind of vision series. This one, though, I think is a little bit different in that this is really going to kind of build upon a foundation. Our our church has existed for five years, and there's now that foundation, but this is really going to set the trajectory, I think, uh, if you will, for the the next decade or so. And so we're really excited about what is happening next and think it's going to be significant. And... Honestly, this has been kind of the the compilation of a lot of things coming together over many years. And so in 60 seconds, I kind of want to tell you what we're going to talk about really quick. That way you kind of have something to expect and and kind of some compartments to to put things in. So first, what we're going to discuss is that Satan is an incredible deceiver and that he has two significant primary illusions that he proposes to us. And unfortunately, more often than not, we as humans buy into those illusions. That's the first thing we're going to discuss. The second is that uh, those illusions paint a picture of Jesus and his way of life that that it's not good in and of itself. And we're going to discuss how it actually is. And then lastly, we're going to deal with kind of where that leaves us in this cultural moment where in many ways the the church is dying. It's shrinking. And our American culture, the American church, is shrinking and shriveling and dying. And you might hear a lot of people say that the church has lost its place and its voice in our culture. And that's just a fact. And so that is kind of going to leave us with part three, if you will, this morning, where I will kind of present what we as the elders and the the leadership of of Restoration Church have been wrestling with and praying through and and want to present to you this morning, except I'm actually only going to tell you what we hope it it will accomplish and some things that it's not, and then I'm just going to leave you with this cliffhanger until next week. So it'll be a really disappointing kind of morning, but hopefully on the journey there, it'll be somewhat good, and we'll see what happens. So I'm going to start with this. There's two primary illusions that Satan is presenting to all of us, and again, more often than not, I actually think we buy one of these two. The, the first is this, the illusion that something is not compelling when it actually is, and the second is the illusion that something is compelling when it actually is not. More specifically, this. The illusion, the first one, is that the way of Jesus is not compelling when it actually is. And the second illusion that Satan presents us to, he's the ultimate deceiver, is that there's a compelling 
good way of life apart from Jesus. Both are illusions, but both are actually pretty captivating and compelling. And the reason that they're captivating and compelling is because God's word, the the scriptures, the Bible itself, God himself actually gives Satan a whole lot of credit for how brilliant and impressive of a deceiver and a manipulator that he is. And so if God gives credit to Satan for being incredibly deceptive and good at it, we'd be pretty utterly foolish to not take Satan seriously too, to not approach cautiously knowing that he has terrible intent, he wants to do nothing more than and will do everything he can to persuade you that the way of Jesus and Jesus himself is not good. And he's going to present these two illusions to do so. I want to kind of take us on a journey so that we can maybe in a little bit more depth understand these two illusions. And so the first kind of imaginative journey, if you will, is going to go way back in time to when I was seven years old. And it was a Sunday morning and I was sitting in a cold, hard, wooden church pew looking at some stained glass in front of me, shivering, because they kept it really cold in that room. My theory is that so people wouldn't fall asleep. And so I'm sitting there in the cold, hard church pew, shivering, singing these words that were about singing. I always think that's kind of funny. And it said, I could sing of your love forever. And I keep singing again. I could sing of your love forever. Ever. And then it's kind of like this time lapse, and all I can hear in my head is forever. And now I'm picturing myself on a cloud and whatever like uh, concept of eternity a seven year old has. And I'm going, so heaven is this forever. And I'm like, this is terrifying. Like, I don't want that, but I'm kind of afraid of hell, so I guess I'll take the cloud and singing the same line forever. And that's kind of one image that maybe you have. It might also include this illusion of, of Christianity and the church, some, some other ideas as well where it's just the spiritual. And you know what? Yeah, you, you don't have to go to hell. You go to heaven and there's going to be no tears or crying or pain or suffering. So that's great. But at the same time, it kind of seems like in this illusion that there's nothing good either. Yeah, there's no pain or tears or crying, but there's nothing good. There's nothing physical to build and enjoy and do. There's just singing with a halo and a loincloth. I could sing of your love forever and ever and ever. You go, that really just doesn't sound that good. You think of the word Christian in our culture. And sometimes, have you heard the word Christian used as a describer, a descriptor of something else? Maybe of a Christian clothing company or a Christian product of some kind? When you hear Christian blank about a product used as a descriptor, what do you usually think about that product? Is it going to be excellent and super quality? No. Like, that is not what Christian things are known as in our culture. What's crazy is that there was a day when that was the case. It was Christian culture and the, the church as followers of Jesus that created and developed the most effective and impressive hospitals and education centers and systems in our culture. We, we brought and cultivated the best, and that's no longer the case. And the result of that is that Christian, Christians, the church, we've lost our place. We've lost our voice because we're not producing something. We're not offering something compelling. 
And at the end of the day, people just aren't that afraid of hell anymore like I was as a seven-year-old. Unfortunately, this is kind of crazy. This is really weird. The only thing that's actually changed, there's only two things that have changed since I was seven. It's still kind of cold here on a Sunday morning, but somehow I ended up here instead of over there. I don't know how God did that. And you get a cushion instead of a cold pew. So that is a plus. We're making a little bit of progress in this whole narrative, and we'll see where it goes. Here's the, uh, the thing. I actually think Kenny Chesney is kind of a brilliant modern theologian, if you will. He kind of paints the picture of how a lot of people embrace this idea, this illusion about who God is and who the church is and what heaven and hell is. Nicola, I know I'm kind of all over the place, but if you could pull up the Kenny Chesney song, that would be really good. Listen to the words. And it's kind of funny, but listen to what this actually articulates and see if you can relate. Preacher told me last Sunday morning, son, you better start living right. Either quit the women and whiskey and carrying on all night. Don't you want to hear them call your name when you're standing at the pearly gates? I told the preacher, yes, I do, but I hope they don't call today. Everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to go now. Eventually, he'll say, yeah, I think I speak for the crowd. Like, it's kind of funny, but there's a lot of people that this is what the belief is. And a different line, he'll say, yes, I want to go. It beats the other place, ain't no doubt, but I don't want to go yet. Why? Because Satan has presented this illusion this dichotomy, if you will, that you have one of two choices. On one hand, you can have heaven and the cloud and the loincloth and the singing forever and escape hell, or you can have the good things of this world and enjoy, and uh, it's good, but you cannot have both. You get one or the other, so Kenny Chesney wants to go to heaven because it beats the other place, but he doesn't want to go now because he doesn't actually believe that heaven with Jesus will be good. Here's the thing, that theology, idea, concept, knowledge about God, like it runs rampant. A lot of people buy into this. And, and that's going to lead us to the second primary uh, illusion that Satan presents us with, and I will add again very effectively. The first was that something isn't compelling when it actually is. The way of Jesus is actually deeply compelling. He is the way, the truth, and the life. But that's not enough. He's actually like the good way and the beautiful truth and the good life, not just the way and the truth and the life. So since I relied on Kenny Chesney, I'm now going to turn to Snoop Dogg because I think that's going to be effective. If you don't know who Snoop Dogg is, I'm going to play the audio from a commercial and just, you might want to close your eyes. It's cold in here. This might take you to a happy, peaceful, warmer place. Go ahead and listen. Ain't 
nothing better than sharing a beer with your friends. Wise words from Snoop Dogg in a Corona commercial. If you've not seen it, he's walking along the beach with some beers and meeting some random people and just handing those beers out to those people. And it's this other vision of the good life. It's a beer on the beach and it's warm and it's sunny. Whether that's as the pleasure that it offers because the waves are good and fun and whatever, or it's an escape from some other reality. It's this vision that is appealing especially when it's cold in January. Here's the thing, though. It's selling a vision apart from or instead of Jesus. Now, we need to understand this because in Christian and in church circles, I think we've missed the point of Romans 125 often. It's not saying that the beer on the beach is bad. Actually, it's good. It's created by God. What it's communicating, though, is if we choose those things instead of or apart from Jesus, they will eventually lead on a path towards destruction. Now, you can substitute whatever you want for a beer in the beach. It could be whatever your thing is that leads to your escape or pleasure or contentment or happiness. We all have those things. Substitute whatever you want. But any of those good parts of creation, apart from Jesus, they will not satisfy, even if the commercial in Snoop Dogg says that they will. Again, we have these two different illusions. They're kind of the opposite side of the same coin. And what they communicate is, on one hand, that the way of Jesus is not compelling when it actually is, or that you can have a compelling good life apart from Jesus when you actually cannot. I already said that that Satan is the best deceiver of all time. This is true. The scriptures acknowledge it. And one of the reasons is he's called the father of lies is because he knows how to couch truth in a lie. From the very beginning, in this moment in Genesis 3, he, he communicates a whole bunch of truth to Adam and Eve, Eve first, and then he just changes a slight little one or two things. She grabs a hold of the truth and then the lie with it. What we, most of us know, if you want to deceive somebody, you need to make it seem plausible, and so it needs to be primarily truth. Satan is good at that. Here's what's unfortunate. The, the cold pew and church thing is unfortunately relatable. Like, Christianity has been kind of boring throughout history. And maybe if it's not the boring piece, the part that is maybe relatable is this. Maybe you can relate. I had a conversation with someone very recently about this, and her experience as a young woman growing up in the church was something like this metaphor. Imagine you walk up to a shopping center, like a marketplace, and there's five buildings, and each of them are a restaurant. And on the left side is the one with the best marketing and advertisement and signage. And it says, we have the best food. It says, we have the healthiest food for you. We have the most delicious food and the best company and service. You're going to love the people around you. They're going to treat you really well. The service is going to be on top and get you what you need. And this young woman grew up going to that restaurant because her parents said, this is the restaurant we go to. It's the right restaurant. And we definitely can't go to that restaurant over there down the way. That restaurant doesn't have the greatest signage. It doesn't claim to have the best food, the healthiest food, the most delicious food and the best service, but it has this reputation that it's better 
that you actually will have a good time, that the food actually is good. And this young woman's kind of been terrified to go try it, but there's this issue. Though the, the signage on the front of that building and that restaurant on the left that says we have the best, most delicious, healthiest food, though it says those things, it's not true. Because when she walks into that place, the people always judge her. And they're hypocritical and they're kind of rude. And the people around her at the different tables, they kind of don't seem to get along. Nobody seems to be very happy. And then she orders the food, and half the time she doesn't even get what she orders. And it's not actually healthy. It doesn't taste good either. And so there's this pretty big distinguishment, contrast from what is said versus what is reality. And eventually, this woman goes, I'm going to go try the other restaurant I've heard something else about. Unfortunately, not in all cases, and I understand I'm making an overgeneralization here, but oftentimes, the church is represented by that restaurant on the left. Judgment, hypocrisy, boring. This is just what we do. It's part of our history. And so now what we recognize, if you look at American culture as a whole, it's broader than that, but we'll just talk about American culture as this whole concept called deconstruction. And people are deconstructing their faith in the church to go, I can't believe what I've been taught. It doesn't line up. Two plus two is not four. It doesn't make sense. I have to pursue the other. And here's the unfortunate thing about it. They're not wrong. Satan's good at lying. And so he takes the pieces that are true of what is not good and healthy and whole, combined with the name of Jesus, and he sells them on this illusion that you can either have heaven and go to that restaurant, but it's not going to be very good, or you can have what is good now, but you can't have both. Now, the scriptures paint an entirely different picture for us. And Psalm 1, I think, is a really perfect place for us to understand that, that the way of Jesus is actually good in and of itself, not merely because it can get you to heaven. I want to go ahead and read uh, Psalm 1 together. It says this, how happy is the man who does not follow the advice of the wicked or take the path of sinners or join a group of mockers. Instead, his delight is in the Lord's instruction, his way. And he meditates on it day and night. He is like a tree planted beside streams of water that bears its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. The wicked are not like this. Instead, they are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not survive the judgment and sinners will not be in the community of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to ruin. Let's break that down a little bit. This is a, a broad-scoped picture being painted of the way of Jesus, of, of Yahweh God, and that it is good. It doesn't go into details, but it gives a, a general picture. Verse 1, how happy is the man that takes this way? That, that word happy can be deceptive because we often talk about happy can be fleeting. Happiness can be fleeting. It's this blissful moment or experience from uh, a memory or something good that happens or a substance or whatever it could be that brings on happiness for a short period of time. That is not the type of happiness that's being discussed here. This is a deep-rooted happiness that this person has found. One that has longevity. It's a, the type of happiness that can celebrate with the best of them but that can also endure through the worst storms. It's not a happiness that's going to be defeated when life brings brokenness, because it will. How happy 
is the man who does not follow the advice of the wicked or take the path of sinners or join a group of mockers. We could put those three lines and kind of combine them into the people that have bought the illusion that Satan has presented, one or the other. Verse two, instead his delight is in the Lord Yahweh's instruction, his way, and he meditates on it day and night. To, to meditate on it day and night here is not referring to waking up really early in the morning and having a devo time and journaling and praying and having silence, though all of that is good. What it's actually referring to when it says day and night is the everyday stuff of life from when you wake to when you sleep, walking through the everyday stuff of our human lives and going, what does the way of Jesus look like here? How am I called to be human the way I was made to be? There is one maker of all humankind, and he has a specific design for how we're to be human as husbands and fathers and mothers and wives, as co-workers, as neighbors, as children and parents, as friends. There's a human design by a designer, by a maker, and we are those who are made. And so we're to meditate on that. What is following the way, practicing the way of Jesus look like in this moment? Because we say and believe that the moment that Jesus is not trustworthy is a moment that does not exist. Now, I think the most important line in this whole psalm is just prior, the first part of verse 2. Instead, his delight is in the Lord's instruction. The word delight is really powerful. Notice this. The psalmist does not say, this man who's happy is happy while he endures the boring Christian, doesn't quite make sense and isn't filled with much good way of life because he's happy since he knows one day he'll get to heaven and he'll escape hell. That is not what it says. It's not saying he's enduring and just suffering through and that it really doesn't make much sense. It's this test, but he's going to get through it so he can go to heaven. It doesn't say that. Ironically, though, that's a powerful illusion. How many people, maybe you in this room this morning, are worried about if you've done enough to please God or what you need to do to make up for your private, or previous mistakes. That's not what's being communicated here. Instead, it's this word delight, meaning it's good. It actually is the source of joy and happiness. Not only do we receive salvation from this God, but we recognize that he's a designer and a really good one. It's not like you got someone to uh, architect out your home Go like, oh, good, I got somebody. Like, you got the best. It's going to be perfect in every way. That's how God designed it. And so Christians actually have the blueprint for the healthiest, most fun and exciting marriages and families and businesses and neighborhoods. It's not just a test to go, yep, I don't have to go to that place. I get heaven. No. The way of Jesus is the good way and the best way. I think we get those two confused. Sometimes we go, it's best Yep, it's my only option. But it's also good for this moment and tomorrow. How happy is the man who does not follow the advice of the wicked or take the path of sinners or join a group of mockers. He's not bought into a different delusion. Instead, his delight is in the Lord's instruction, and he meditates on it, lives it out day and night. Verse 3, he is like a tree planted beside streams of water. This also comes back to that word design. It's describing an irrigation channel that was dug out prior to the tree being planted. And so it would then make sense to plant the tree near that irrigation channel so that that tree will always have water and therefore healthy growth will result. Now, once the irrigation channel is designed and dug out, 
The person planting a tree could plant it somewhere else where there's no water, but that wouldn't be very smart. That'd be pretty dumb. Ironically, when we plant the trees of our lives, often we don't go, hey, where did God create and dig out this irrigation channel for water? It would make sense to listen to him because he drew it up. He designed, he made, and brilliantly, not just best so we go to heaven, but good for this moment now. It affects every part of life. And instead we go, ah, I think I'll go plant the tree over there. I know there's no water, but I think, there, I think it'll, it'll work out. What, what this almost is saying is live into the design God has made. Then that tree will bear fruit in its season. Good will happen. This isn't a prosperity gospel thing or a, a name it and claim it thing where it's like, I want a boat. We'll have a boat. It doesn't work that way. That's not what this is saying. But it's saying good things will be produced in your families, in your marriages, in your business. Like, that's a promise of the scriptures if you embrace the way that life was designed by the designer. Now, that's the first half of it. We have to hear the second. It also says this, and whose leaf does not wither. Another way to translate that would mean there's going to be hard times. There's going to be brokenness and suffering and hardship. But you can know as a follower of Jesus, if you embrace his design and plant your tree, your life, by the waters he dug out, embrace his design, that those times will not break you. The leaf will not wither and die. It'll face hardship. It might be aged, but it will not be destroyed because Jesus' design will not fail, because Jesus' love never fails. He's like a tree planted beside streams of water that bears its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. The wicked are not like this. Instead, they're like chaff that the wind blows away. Here's the thing about those illusions and part of what makes them compelling, especially the beer on the beach one. It seems as if things can be so good for others at times. It seems as if God does not hear our cries, our requests, our needs, or maybe even as if God doesn't know what he's doing in his design. Other visions might have their moments, but eventually that moment will die. That leaf will wither. That part of the story will end. Like chaff, it will just blow away. Therefore, the wicked will not survive the judgment, and sinners will not be in the community of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to ruin. That word watches means knows. The Lord knows. It means he is with us. He walks with us. When we take communion on a Sunday morning, it's embracing that verse. For the Lord watches over the way of the right. He is with us and united to us. You're never alone if you're walking in and with, in the way of Jesus and with him personally. That's really good news. Not just for a distant, far, far away future on a cloud singing songs about forever. It's good for this moment today. It's good for you today. It's good for your family members and loved ones and your neighbors and the places of business you encounter and your workplace. The way of Jesus is not just best. It's good today in this moment. Sadly, that's not what our culture believes about the way of Jesus. Unfortunately, that's not what the culture, as it looks in towards the church, sees. What it likely sees is a bunch of people, either one, wasting their time and it's boring and not having fun when they could, or enjoying what is good, or two, just the place of a lot of judgment and hypocrisy and rules for no reason. And that's sad, because the way of Jesus is neither of those. The way of Jesus is really good here 
and now. It's for this reason, Satan's attack on the goodness of the way of Jesus, that is, we as the, the leadership at Restoration Church, the elders and staff, and, and some of you have been discussing and praying, we're recognizing that there's a need to shift. The, the church, both our church and the church at large, the American church, can no longer function as a destination. If the church functions as a destination, the church will fully die. The church has to function like a neighborhood. The church has to function like a family. It can't even be a group of individuals that happen to gather together. It has to be a gathering of a community and a family that celebrate and worship and cry and mourn and celebrate and mess up and repent and laugh and cry and do all of life together in the way of Jesus. And until we do that united as one, and we'll make mistakes, but until we do that united together as one, we won't make a difference. The voice of the church will die out completely. Our kids, the next generation, they won't even mess with that restaurant because it's been tested and proven wanting. There's got to be something different and authentic and real, the everyday stuff of life happening as we follow Jesus together. And so it's with that in mind that we uh, bring up the title of the series. It's the trellis. Uh, a trellis is simply this. It's a structure designed to lead, catalyze, and support the healthy growth of a vine. And so we're taking uh, what the scriptures have put together, what theologians from centuries past, what Jesus himself said, and we're going to create a, a trellis, or more so adopt a trellis, a healthy or a structure to promote healthy growth as we follow Jesus together in the everyday stuff of life. I don't know about you, but sometimes I find choices overwhelming. You have an unlimited amount of choices in this world. Even last night, my wife Chelsea and I are sitting on the couch. We just finished a show. We're like, hey, what should we watch? Let's pick a new show together. I don't, I don't know if this has happened to you, but we could sit there for like an hour and 15 minutes trying to pick a show, and then I'm like, hey, I'm too tired. Let's just go to bed. Granted, I have four kids, and you never know how much they're going to wake up, so I get tired and go to bed early anyway, but there's just too many choices. Cars, music, shows, education, like it's endless. And sometimes you don't know where to start. One of the things we want to do is create this trellis, a structure to promote healthy growth that will work for you, not be perfect, it's not going to change everything forever, but it'll work for you whether you're going to start following Jesus today, or maybe you've been following him in maturity for decades it still applies to everyone. Uh, a couple things uh, about this structure. It's a, a set, six actually, uh, a series of six action steps, values, and, and maybe the word I'll use is rhythms that we want to embrace and commit to instilling in our lives together. And if we embrace to instilling these six things, they're not my things, they're biblical. <laughs> it's the way of Jesus. Um, not comprehensively, but a good starting point that every follower of Jesus is called to. I, I wholeheartedly believe if we do this, the image, the picture of the church changes. Not just theoretically, but really. Uh, and it's different. It's about the everyday stuff of life. It's this shift from fitting Jesus into our busy lives. Like, hey, Jesus, I can give you this compartment to going, the way of Jesus is the centering point. It is the cornerstone and foundation, not of the spiritual, but of everything. And how do I build my life and my schedule and my rhythms and my values around Jesus versus fitting Jesus into it? A couple things I want to share about these six 
things. First, here's what we hope uh, it will accomplish. Number one, it'll guide young and mature believers alike to trust Jesus always, no matter the moment. Um, Not perfectly, not comprehensively, but this, I believe, will be something that forces us to trust. Uh, Sometimes uh, a child, if a child is going to learn how to swim, they just have to get into the water. It's kind of funny in this Christian church thing. Sometimes we go, hey, you're a new believer. Get in a class, and we're going to teach you 100 things about Jesus instead of going like, yeah, we're going to do that, but you also just need to dive in and swim. You need to learn what it looks like to follow Jesus and the everyday stuff of life and trust him. Number two, it'll give structure to love our culture well. Over the last, really, three centuries or so, what what has happened in our society, really in any Western culture, is that religion, not just Christianity, but religion as a whole, has been relegated to the private sphere of life. So we have this phrase often, Jesus is my personal Lord and Savior. That phrase didn't exist until modern philosophy created individualism and then relegated religion to the private sector. So we have this fight about taking God out of our government and courthouses and schools and all of these things. That's bigger than Christianity. That's relegating all of religion to the private sphere because what we're doing as a culture, I'm not saying us, but our culture as a whole has done is say there's absolute truth and then there's personal truth. And Jesus can be a personal truth, but he can't be an absolute truth. And so now there's the saying that churches have adopted, Jesus is my personal Lord and Savior. In the scriptures, that doesn't exist. Jesus is just Savior. Yes, he happens to be mine, but he's just King Jesus. And what we've lost in the church when a bunch of individuals come to a destination that really functions like a religious vending machine, and we call it church on Sundays, is we don't interact with our culture. We don't know how to. We don't have a a place to actually do the the next thing, to filter the distorted in our culture that clashes with the way of Jesus. We don't know how to do that. We also don't know how to celebrate the good things in our culture, even if they don't have a Christian label and go, hey, you know what? That principle, that value, it actually comes from Jesus. That's a part of the way of Jesus, and it's good today. If the church wants to reclaim its voice, we have to dive right into culture and be able to filter these things. Two last things we hope this trellis, this structure will provide. It'll give structure as a starting place of growth for new believers. I talked about that. And then lastly, it'll give structure as a support when a mature believer has grown substantially and needs support to be held up. There's some of you in this room that fall into that category. You're mature, healthy followers of Jesus, except You've been giving and giving and giving and growing and growing and growing. And it seems like in church organizations, those people get neglected the most. Well, we got to focus on the new. we got to focus on people coming into the door. That's great and that's true. But it's kind of like a tree that is bearing really good fruit. Eventually, there's a branch that has the biggest and best fruit, and it cracks because it has so much weight and no support. The church isn't meant for just new believers. The church is meant for all people following Jesus. And there's actually a place... For the youngest followers of Jesus to support the oldest and vice versa. It's the health of the diversity of what the church is. Not a destination, but a community and a people. Uh, Lastly, this. There's two things that we have to understand that this trellis cannot be and will not be, but will actually be tempted to become. And if Satan's going to attack this venture, he will attack it in likely one of these two ways. The, The first is that this is not a test, it's a trellis. 
So we have to be very, very fully clear. You cannot earn God's love and you cannot earn salvation. These six components and rhythms have nothing to do with God loving you more or less. That's not possible. He's just love and he just gives love, period. No amounts. Offers it the same to everyone. Whether you've done a lot of good or a lot of bad, doesn't matter. This has nothing to do with that. It's not a test. You can't prove even your love to God with this. It's not about that. What it is, is a structure to promote healthy growth. It's acknowledging that we have a designer, we have a maker, and he made us to be human a specific way in all areas of life and going, I'm going to plant my tree by the water so that it grows. This is not a test. It's a trellis. It's a structure to promote healthy growth. The second thing it is not is a one-size-fits-all box. This isn't a kind of ignorant, hey, your life needs to be just like mine or mine needs to be like yours. Everyone in this room has a different story. We've got big families, we've got small families, we've got single people, we've got married people, old people, young people, everything in between. Different financial situations, socioeconomic demographics, all of these things are different. That's good. That's actually beautiful. But that means you're going to need a different structure. Now, these six things can apply to anyone, but they're going to ebb and flow and have room for creativity to fit who you are and the, the stage of life you're in. The other thing this means when I say it's not a box, is if you put a box over a plant, you're going to suffocate it from all sunlight and oxygen and water that it needs, and it will die. The church has done that at different times. It's called legalism. That's how we think of it. Bunch of rules, don't do this, do that, and everything will be good. It doesn't work. This isn't that. It's just a structure. And structure's needed, but it's not a box to contain. It's to support and promote healthy growth. I'm going to actually close with this. Next week, I'll talk about what the six components of this trellis are. Um, I'm excited about it. I think it's going to be really impactful. And it's going to define who we are and how we function as a church. Before that, though, you need to understand, I am not selling something that is easy or just purely good, that won't have cost, and that won't hurt. It will. It will do all of those things. It will lead to hardship. It will cost you a whole lot of time and probably some money and effort and tears and energy, and it's not going to be easy. That is my full-on sales pitch to you. What we're about to do as a church, the adventure we're going to take together is going to be costly. And I couldn't believe more in it. Both. I believe it's the way that Jesus is calling us to. It won't be for everyone in this room or in the, the room from last service. It's not going to be. It's not designed to be. It's not what a church is. It's not a destination. It's for those that want to go, here's who we want to be together because we're looking into the future and the way of Jesus is good. It's not easy, but we have to be united in it. So I'm going to ask you to do two things. Number one to ask yourself, or maybe as a family unit, or however you function, are you at a place where you want to, or need to, could be both or one or the other, are you at a place where you want to, or need to, take Jesus more seriously? Process that question this week. Are you at a place where you want to, or need to, take Jesus more seriously? Number two, pray, and ask the Spirit to guide you on if he's calling you to join us in this. And I know you're like, you didn't even tell us what it is. I get that. We'll talk about it next week, and then we'll have a whole opportunity the third week to dive in a little further and do a whole live Q&A uh, session to, to really dive into the details. Let's just start asking, Spirit, is this something you're prompting me to join in, to link shields, to walk together, and to participate in? We'll talk about the details 
uh, next week. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that your way is indeed good, both today and tomorrow and the next day. God, I pray that you give us courage and wisdom not to attempt to follow you alone or just personally, but to recognize our our cultural moment, to unite as you've called us to be one church with one faith under your one name, Jesus. Provide us wisdom and discernment and protection from the illusions and deceit of the enemy. Guide our steps as we seek you and we worship you. We trust you in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Landon. I think ultimately speaking, the best trellis or structure that Jesus provided for all of this to take place was an actual relationship with him. And he desires that so deeply. And so even as you process what God might be calling you to with regard to what Landon just talked about, it's rooted, it should be, in a whole relationship with Jesus. And that's why we carve out time for communion every single week, because the Lord set this up It's a powerful reminder of the relationship that he made possible by going to the cross and then raising from the dead. He uh, took the punishment that we deserved on himself. Back to Hebrews chapter 12 that we're looking at today. Therefore, since we've been surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, really, to the goodness of God and the faithfulness of God over time, We're then privileged to lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily entangles. And then the thought that this author of Hebrews leads us to next is then to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, or the source and perfecter of our faith, who took up the cross, took up the shame so that we didn't have to. It's really no better opportunity to just commune with Jesus, be reminded of the relationship that you have with Jesus, the love that Jesus has for you, what he's done for you, than taking these communion elements that are off to either side of the stage. You've got the bread that represents his body there that was broken for you, the drink that represents the cup there that his blood shed for you. And so we'll invite you here in just a moment as music plays, to come forward, take these elements, take them back to your seat, spend some time in reflection in your relationship with Jesus, just how much he loves you. You can take communion on your own when you're ready, and uh, we'll wrap up our time lifting our voices to the Lord. And so, Father, thank you so much for who you are. Thank you for all you've done for us. It's a privilege just to be in communion with you So we take this time seriously and thankfully to be reminded of who you are and what you've done for us. Gives us hope for the future too, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.
Thanks so much for listening. Once again, we are Restoration Church in beautiful Prescott, Arizona. And uh, if this is your first time, we're so glad that you're able to connect. If you get an opportunity, take a moment and jump over to restorationaz.org. And uh, we would love to connect with you there. You can also learn a little bit more about who we are, what we're about. And um, yeah, if, uh, if you don't call Restoration Home and you're still just doing the online thing, we just want to encourage you, find a place to get plugged in. It doesn't have to be Restoration Church, but there's something really valuable and important about being a part of the body of Christ together. And so once again, so glad you could tune in. And until next time, remember, Jesus is the only one who is trustworthy always, no matter the moment. So let's press on as we continue to practice the way of Jesus.